Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's webinar uh, that's brought to you by the CHEST uh, COVID-19 um, Task Force. And today we're going to be talking about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on medical education. We have Dr. Helms, Dr. Miles, and Dr. Rampon today uh, representing the residencies, the fellowships, and the educator perspectives um, on the impact from this pandemic. So I'm going to go, into, go ahead and introduce all three of them. Uh, Dr. Helms, uh, Dr. Leticia Helms, she's a first-year resident at, uh, in internal medicine at Columbia Med. She is an international medical graduate who trained in Brazil, and um, her interests lie in mentorship. She has taken a lot of time and effort to mentor other IMGs during this pandemic, which has been particularly challenging. Uh, and uh, use of social media and innovative educational methodologies uh, to bring knowledge to other learners. She also wants to make, uh, I think, applications more streamlined so they're not as sort of difficult depending on where you are in your training. Um, so that, that was very interesting to know. Dr. Rampon, Dr. Garrett Rampon is from the University of Kansas where he is currently a third year Palmian Critical Care Fellow. Uh, he, is, uh, he has accepted a position at University of Missouri in Kansas City, uh, which is a different state, but the same city, as he has uh, told us their local MLS team has adopted as their new symbol. Is that right, Garrett? Fair enough. Um, his clinical interests lie in proning, and, uh, but as an educator, he's interested in working with fellows on procedural training, procedural education, accuracy, and so on and so forth. So welcome. And then Dr. Matt Miles, who has been a friend, a, a mentor without him realizing it. And he's at the Wake Forest School of Medicine, where he is the program director for the Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship. He's also the immediate past president of the Training and Transitions Committee at CHEST uh, and a member of the Education Committee. So he has done this longitudinally with CHEST over time. So he brings all that experience in for us. And his interests lie in building multimedia content and developing curriculum, um, amongst other interesting things that we talked about. So, me, uh, I am a brain, I'm a pulmonary critical care attending out here in Syracuse. I straddle both the private and uh, academic worlds. I love doing it because I feel like I get the best of both worlds. I'm an associate, new baby associate program director for our fellowship here. Um, and it has been an interesting time to start as an attending and as an educator during this pandemic. So all of us are uh, conflict-free, which is always easy and quick. So let's get into it. We have a very long set of questions and areas and topics to cover. So I'm gonna send my first question down to you, Dr. Helms. From your perspective, how did this pandemic impact your training as a resident? Well, uh, first, thank you for having me here. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, I think the pandemic in fact affected everyone in the hospital, but the residents, I was, I started my, my residency uh, like this year in June. So last year, sorry. So I, I wasn't there when things happened for the first time. And I like the feeling that I had was when I started the residency program, the residents that were there already uh, prepared us a little bit for what, what could come. Uh, soon and it did come. So in the, we had challenging months uh, here in New York again, and uh, I think it impacted in terms of our didactics. We have been having a lot of Zoom uh, didactics. We we now we're going back to in-person meetings, uh, which is nice, and we're going to talk a little bit about the pros and cons. But uh, the didactics have been impacted a lot, but also our patient population. Uh, we've been dealing with uh, sick patients that are not always in the unit. And uh, we've been dealing with uh, some hard situations as an intern that you, were, you would probably not deal with so early uh, in your career. So I think it impacted in every single way possible, uh, but the, it also impacted in the way that residents and, and attendings and everyone uh, get along in the hospital, I feel like. I think people are way more understanding and um, want to support uh, the whole team and each other. So I think that's a little bit of how I felt starting a residency in the middle of this. 
Oh, it turns on muted. So I was going to say thank you for literally uh, the hard work that the residents, the fellows, the trainees put in. You know, there's not enough thanks for it. And, and clearly all of us worked hard, but a lot of those things that you mentioned did go unspoken for. Uh, so from the fellow standpoint, Dr. Rampon, what was your experience? And, and thank you as well for having me on. It's a, a pleasure and an honor to be here. And you know, I, I certainly would echo some of the sentiments that Dr. Helms uh, shared, where at least I know in kind of the summertime of 2019, I remember going through a journal club in our didactic about uh, some of the mechanisms of uh, alveolar injury and e-cigarettes and vaping and thinking, wow, this is this is cutting edge stuff. This is really going to be the forefront and the big thing in my training and, and what we're doing. And little did I know what was coming around the corner. Uh, but I, I think one of the biggest ways that um, COVID impacted us is we started to see a shift. And when we started to see hospital peaks, uh, our role in the healthcare system is even just in trainees still shifted away from I'm here to help the attendings and I'm here to learn to no, no, we really are vital to taking care of these patients and vital to making sure that the hospital operates. And it did become a little, um, the worry was how do we balance, you know, this COVID need with our broader education. And it really brought uh, some questions and some discussions about how do we still come out of this pandemic as trainees, as well-rounded pulmonologists and critical care fellows too. All right, I'm going to direct this to Dr. Miles. So you heard from both Dr. Helms and Dr. Ramon. So the service over education aspect of training. I mean, that clearly took a hit. Uh, I think inadvertently, while education was still the mission, it became very service heavy. And in a lot of aspects, the service may or may not have been what you originally thought you signed up to do. So as educators... What, was it hard? What was your perspective? Because we, I think we're all aware of what happened and we remember what our job was and our duties were to Dr. Zalm and Dr. Rampon. So how did you perceive that? How did you try to balance it? Were we able to balance it? Well, it's a, it's a great question and it gives a chance to sort of think back of what was our mindset in early 2020 when this really became, uh, became known to be a pandemic. Um, I would also want to start, like Dr. Helms and Rampon said, and just thank you for the invitation, the opportunity to talk uh, today and uh, on this topic, which is going to be hopefully reflective for us uh, and instructive uh, for, for what may come in the future. When we first realized that we were dealing with a pandemic and we were likely to experience major surges, um, I had concerns as a program director and as a faculty member for our residents um, that we would really be in a struggle uh, for not only delivering the education that we wanted to deliver, but also protecting of our residents. As we all remember, there was a lot of uncertainty initially about exactly what was the risk. And so another dynamic that was at play was trying to determine what was the appropriate amount of exposure to COVID-19 patients for trainees. Would it have, and, I'm, and we, we did not take this approach, but I know of institutions they took the approach of saying no trainee will see a COVID-19 patient, which just sounds ridiculous to us today, doesn't it? There's just no way we could have achieved this care without our entire teams that includes our residents, our fellows, uh, and even our medical students. And so, but initially that was a concern. You know, what, what would this really mean and how would we do it? Another interesting dynamic that came into play, this is more on the fellow side because that's where uh, most of my focus is, is that our fellows on the rather than being hesitant to enter into an unknown virus, uh, you know, with unknown contagiousness, with unknown virulence, they were all in, you know, for the most part, they said, this is what we're here for. We signed up for this, let us help. And so um, that was a renewed way that we saw the partnership that we all really share in we are here for this. We're here not only for one another, we are here for one another. We're here for our society. We're here for our patients. And yes, this is risky, more risky than we had expected. But I was really heartened by the overall attitude among our fellows and fellows all over the country and residents too, uh, that uh, you know 
we have dedicated our lives to the care of our patients and we're here for this. Now, uh, the implications as time goes on and clinical volumes are high, there's big implications for how we deal with education. Uh, and and we'll, we'll talk about that as we go on. But, uh, but those are some initial thoughts, trying to put myself back in the mindset of what was it like March, April, May, 2020. Uh, there were some expected things and there were some unexpected things uh, that we had to deal with. So let's talk about unexpected things that are very much um, beyond expected. Now we're experts in them. So Zoom calls, right? Um, Dr. Helms, so what worked well? You brought this up. Education took a virtual pivot, right? So what worked well, you think? I think especially in residency that sometimes we're very busy and we're running around and uh, Zoom gave us the opportunity to join uh, conferences and talks and lectures that we wouldn't be able to join in person in specific moments and uh, to be able to attend those even without being there uh, is definitely a, a positive thing. And also to be able to attend some some lectures from home. We don't have a lot of time at home, but when we do, it, it can be nice as well. So I, I think that would be the, the main the main pro for me. Dr. Rampon, I'm gonna ask you the flip side. Mm-hmm. What do you think did not work as well? And I'm asking this specifically to you because I know you've been you've uh, told me about your interest in procedural education, hands-on training. Yeah, sure. And, and, and certainly uh, the hands-on training took a little bit of a hit uh, in the, the beginning when, you know, we were trying to stay six feet away from each other and not have more than four people in the same room. Uh, and, and so the on-hand practical aspect uh, took a hit. But I think most people have uh, now adopted to that. And I think we're entering a phase of the uh, pandemic where we're now starting to get those smaller groups together and get those hands-on training, uh, which is really critical to development back. Uh, I think one of the things that maybe took a hit was uh, while the availability of Zoom conferences are nice and be able to have those didactics from home, uh, you know, it you do miss something in the education and the conversations that do happen. And having so many people be able to chime in and talk that you get in an actual in-person setting, whereas on Zoom, you know, maybe they're Mike is muted and their camera's off and they're, you know, off feeding the dog and don't want to contribute in the way they normally would. So I think that is, it is a double-edged sword that came. I do have to say I've become very, um, I've come to know my colleagues as pets and children very well. That actually has been, I'm, I've been very okay with that because now they send me texts and I know what their names are. In some cases, I even know, you know, what the puppy does not do very well. So that I have not minded as much. So Dr. Miles, you've heard, right, what kind of worked well, didn't work well. What I've been worried as an educator and wanted to get your thoughts on is, what about elements of training that, you know, just couldn't happen during this time? So for example, PFTs for pulmonary critical care fellows, PFD lab shut down, um, just didn't get done. CPED lab shut down, didn't get done. So you're not reading them as much. Um, how, how, how do we catch up with that or how do we fulfill that gap going forward? It's a good question. And, and there are uh, other things too. And Dr. Rampon alluded to the procedural limits because uh, intubations for a brief time at our institution were only done by the anesthesiologist, whereas typically we and our fellows will do those. So there are several things that were gaps. And I think the most favorable thing about that is it it was temporary, right? And so uh, whether it was the intubations, which we quickly realized there were just too many <laughs> to let anesthesia do them all, um, or PFTs and CPET, where we have now resumed those activities, you know, when we think about the general trajectory of a pulmonary and critical care fellow, their training is three years long. Uh, so we have had adequate time to bring those things back into their experience. Um, the same might not be true of folks who say are doing, did a, did a one-year, uh, you know, critical care or a two-year critical care fellowship. There could be procedures uh, that would be a big challenge. And I think uh, it gives us the opportunity to look at uh, the way we supplement those things. Uh, simulation is a great supplement. It's not perfect. I think uh, there will probably be uh, interest in live courses, live learning courses, such as the ones that CHEST puts on or 
uh, other regional courses that are done to give people those hands-on skills that they may feel that they haven't gotten enough in. I can tell you the conversations that, that I've had with other program directors uh, about this has, has led me to believe we uh, are not in deep deficits for the training for our trainees. I think we had short gaps in those, but we're able to recover. Uh, thankfully, uh, volumes of those procedures and tests you know, have, have, have recovered in many places, uh, almost to pre-pandemic levels. So, um, But I think that uh, there are likely to be individual variations in how much a person may have had exposure. You know, if you were planned to have your PFT rotation in the smack middle of the pandemic, and that was the only rotation you were going to have, for example, um, obviously that needs to be addressed. And, and we did that in our program. We uh, had uh, rotations that were rescheduled and we were able to put those into later places where they could happen. Um, and so we've all had to address that. And as we would normally be, uh, to be attentive to our trainees and, and not only the experience of the group, but the individual experience too, and making sure they get what they're, what they're, uh, what they're needing. Yeah. You know, talking about <clears throat> aspects of training that have taken an impact. So how about maybe we talk about different segments of training and see if we can understand that better. So let's start with rounds. Rounds, I think have been, We've all talked about rounds, table rounds, sit down rounds, half up, half down, rounding structure, rounding anatomy. So those are my areas of interest. So what worked for you, uh, Dr. Helms? When the dust settled, what did you feel um, would be the best things if you could run rounds your way that you picked up during the pandemic? Well, I, I feel like we had to work things around. So uh, I did have different uh, rounds and different styles that happened, but not as much as like the, the PGY2s and creating in my program had to adapt in the first and second wave. So uh, for me, I think uh, we did way less. Uh, we did way more uh, table rounds than, than before. And uh, to obviously have less exposure to the patients and to, to give the patients less exposure to, to all of us as well. Uh, and then we tried to keep uh, rounds like with less people, and then uh, we would have less people, like less other healthcare professionals uh, with us that are always super, super um, nice and contribute a lot to patient care. So having less of those people joining us is definitely something that didn't, didn't work well. And I think the more the larger is the group and the more diverse is the group, the better uh, care we're able to provide to our patients. Uh, but I think uh, if I could, and I'm not, I don't think COVID contributed to the, the ideal rounds that I would, I would like, I'd like to have, I feel like my ideal rounds would be bedside rounds uh, with the patient, with the whole team talking about, about uh, the patient history, having the patient contribute to the history as well, and then being able to test our hypothesis and to examine the patient and to guide uh, the thought process uh, by the patient symptom signs and, and physical exam. So I, I think in terms of rounds, I don't think uh, COVID helped us a lot. Interesting. What about both of you, Dr. Miles, Dr. Rampon? Did you pick up anything good from this pandemic on about rounds? Did you did you come out of it being like, you know, you know what? I'll, I'll help you. I won't lead you on like this. I feel mean. How about that? Um, so, I read this paper sometime during the pandemic, and I'm not sure when it came out. I'll have a look into it, but it talked about the impact on patient care if you round for too long that patient care suffers because, you know, obviously all the patients that come in during your rounds, they don't get seen, consoles that get called. So I thought a lot about how do I round on my 40 people, right, efficiently, because after 10 a.m. my mind's wandering. And I also teach, but also give good care to patients. So what I did realize is it's okay if I compartmentalize that if today my rounds are about education, right? So my, on my first day, for example, I tell them, don't worry about anything today. Today, our goal is to get to know the patients. No, no questions, no Socraticness, nothing, right? Today's just, let's get to know our patients. Don't worry about anything. And then I shifted towards more education heavy rounds as the week went on. 
because I took over the burden of collecting those little data bits in my head and just focused on tell me how you want to treat heart failure. Don't worry about the creatinine. So that's what I figured is the only way to do it sanely from this pandemic. How about that? I gave you a strategy, so I'm not leading you on unnecessarily. Tell me. Well, I, I think one of the things that came out of it was a forced efficiency uh, when the work burden was as much as it as it got to. Uh, how do we get through all of that work in an in efficient manner? And I think some of the ways that manifested uh, was kind of an expansion of you know an ICU checklist. I think most places employ a standard checklist of DVT prophylaxis, uh, the ulcer prophylaxis, etc., to include some of the more airway things and sedation where we don't necessarily need to sit here and belabor the topic, just say, what are we doing? Why are we on that? What changes have we made? Moving on next. And then maybe um, catching, you know, uh, selecting which patients are going to be the most uh, bang for the buck in terms of uh, being able to really dig down deep and have those educational talks about what's going on. And, you know, maybe it's not the seventh patient who all they have is COVID pneumonia and they're intubated. You know, we don't have to dig into that a lot, but, you know, the patient we just got who has liver failure and we don't know why, there's a lot of discussion that can go down. So maybe we minimize all the deep delving discussions about these 16 patients that we have and really learn a whole lot about this one interesting one came in. And it really made the time a lot more efficient, a lot more bang for the buck in terms of the educational aspect of rounding. Uh, I, I think that's I like a that. great that's observation. So yeah. No, 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 go ahead, man. I, I was just going to add to what Dr. Rampon was saying. I think uh, the rounding impact of the pandemic, like some education things, accelerated some moves that maybe were becoming more usual practice. And I think in this case, what it has accelerated is the realization that a lot of our critical care <clears throat> is best done, um, you know, in, in whether you want to say a checklist format or a you know, core features format of saying, look, there's a certain core that is efficient and important that should be done similarly for the same patient, you know, every day, we need to check it, we need to do it, but we don't need to belabor it, right? We can discuss the underpinnings of those things in different settings, in different didactic formats. But really, what's the point of having a group of doctors at a bedside, right? The point um, I think is to talk about some of the decision-making that goes in. Like Dr. Rampun gave the example, the patient with liver failure of unexplained cause, you know, lots of decision-making and how do we interpret those things? That's where you want to maximize your time at the bedside. The other thing I would say, you asked, Viren, if there was anything that sort of was good about the pandemic's impact on bedside rounds. And I would say, no, uh, it was all bad because uh, what we were unable to do is be Dr. Osler, right? We think about Dr. Osler as the model of who started bedside teaching. And it was teaching at the bedside with patients, giving care while students and learners watched or participated in that. And, you know, we often decry the, the loss of physical exam skills and patient communication, uh, the importance of good patient communication, establishing rapport, expressing compassion, and those are things that, you know, we couldn't model when we couldn't all be in the room together. Even worse, how do you model those things when you're behind a plexiglass shield or uh, and have a mask on? You know, all the challenges that that came, I think, were an added burden to those of us who want to be good educators and want to model good care for our learners. While we are also struggling with a lot of these new barriers to provide that good care ourselves. Um, so uh, in addition to that, you know, losing the opportunity to have our multidisciplinary team present, you know, physical therapists, pharmacists, social work, other professionals who might normally join us at the bedside could not do that. Uh, again, mostly because of the pandemic and, and infection precaution issues. Uh, so a lot of a lot of tough things about the process of rounding uh, that I'm glad to see starting to go by the wayside. I like it. I like it that we all seem to have had the same experience and in general agree that some things about medical education are just core. And no matter where you do them, sounds like the core stay the same. I think that's a fair statement. But 
talking about this impact on learning, the Osler method, where you get to watch and learn. And, you know, there's the other type of learning, which we have traditionally uh, had in medicine, which is those large classrooms, you know, where it gets to be the stage on the stage, you know, is going on and on for an hour, you know, the same topic, because we want to really get to know the topic, right? I think you just can't help being thorough. You have to be thorough, jokes apart. However, I think asynchronous learning, which really, really took a sort of, you know, forefront during this pandemic is huge for a number of reasons. One is there's different formats. You can have videos, you can have audio, you can have pictures, infographics, tweets, tutorials, webinars, right? It, it was amazing how in two years, everybody got comfortable with all of it, right? One and two, you can truly do it from anywhere. So we know that there's data showing that medical medical school education, this is not about any one school, in general, has gone down significantly in person even before the pandemic. So I think we were already heading there. So for that reason, I do think that impact of learning was good. So my question to Dr. Helms is, since you've had experience in this, all this asynchronous learning, how do we now make it more sort of streamlined? How does it become more acceptable as part of your curriculums in med school? Who curates this? Who maintains the quality on this, right? It's good. I'm glad there's infographics on AKI. But now you got to make sure, right? Because it's not coming out of a book. So how do you do that? Yeah, I think I think the fact that we're using these new tools, uh, people that use them need to be very careful in terms of like where where the information is coming from. And I think it's we we are we do that with papers as well. Whenever we are reading a paper, we need to make sure that that evidence is good enough. So I think it's just like we are translating that. Uh, kind of like, is this worth reading? And is that is this actually good data to to other other plat platforms as well? And we were talking uh, before we came, we we got live here about the tutorials and how they have been like impacting on uh, on our lives in terms of sometimes we are in residency and we got we get our phone and we have a notification and it's from a nice organization or that is like promoting education, talking about a topic that I just had a question about. And then I open it and it's a quick tutorial that I can read in one minute that is gonna give me the answer. And it, the last one is gonna give me the, the source. And if I wanna learn more, I can go there and then I can dig into it. Otherwise I got the information very quickly and, and, and trustworthy. So I had the opportunity to work with Cardio Nerds, which is a, really nice institution coordinated by Dr. Goyal and Dr. Envender uh, from uh, Hopkins. And they were uh, like telling me they were the, the whole Cardio Nerds platform is about teaching in a quick, easy way with uh, podcasts, with tutorials, with uh, infographics. And we basically analyze, uh, analyze the data uh, of like how, how nice the tutorials were uh, getting across people and if people were actually using it. And the way we did that is they were very well organized. Uh, right in the beginning, we would have a learning objective poll and ask people, are you comfortable with this topic uh, in your clinical practice? And most people that participated were uh, medical students, internal medicine residents, residents or fellows or attendings, and they would uh, answer the poll and then they would read the, the tweets that would follow that. And then in the end, this, they would answer the same poll. So now are you comfortable managing this, this patient or this condition or, or do you know more about this topic? And the data that, that came from this was actually very nice uh, to see that people did learn very quickly something very specific. So I think we are adapting, but I completely agree with you that we need to be careful and we need to make sure that whatever we are, re we are reading is coming from uh, a, a good organization or a good paper or from like good data. Rumals, can I point this one to you? So as a program director, um, have you run into fellows, you know, pulling up the phone and saying, hey, look, there's a picture on how to prone somebody? Oh, yeah. Well, so I think this topic is is 
is very, very interesting. When you bring up the idea of what does it mean to have the explosion that we've had in asynchronous learning. Um, and so if I could tell a story first as an illustration, I'll do that. So um, I took my kids for spring break to, uh, to the coast. We went to a historic site and we spent some time up there. And one night we went to uh, a seafood restaurant, you know, Winston-Salem, where I live, we're, we're a little landlocked, right? So when I have a chance to get good seafood, I like to go. So we went to the seafood restaurant and my daughter, true to form, ordered chicken fingers. And so, you know, she had, uh, she had a, little, a slight bit of disappointment in the quality of her chicken fingers. And I said, honey, you know, you ordered chicken at a fish restaurant. What did you think you were going to get? So I bring this up because Dr. Helms had mentioned, you know, where does our information come from? Am I reading about chicken from a fish restaurant, you know, or am I, am I reading about it, you know, from a chicken place that knows chicken? So uh, that's a silly example to say, I think that with the explosion of micro learning of asynchronous opportunities, whether it's a tutorial or, you know, a one page diagram an infographic um, or a YouTube video, you know, that's, that someone has produced, uh, we do have to continue to keep our uh, filters up to recognize who is talking to me um, and do I trust that person as a source? But the other thing is, when was this created? Because even what we know today about COVID-19, for example, if I were to go and look at material that was produced in early 2020, I may be led in a different direction than, than generally accepted practice is now. And so I think that on this topic of having so many places to learn from, it has not undermined the role of traditional uh, mentors or traditional teachers or the traditional faculty that we have in programs. I think in some ways it lets those faculty actually have a larger role in helping our trainees adjudicate. Hey, is this right? So like you said, if a fellow came to me and said, look, here's on my phone, this is how to prone. My first question would be, oh, that's great. Where is that from? You know, is this a, you know, a tutorial that's from the American College of Chess Physicians? you know, is, uh, you know, or, or is it, is it, uh, you know, from somewhere else? So I think that's a really uh, important thing. In some ways, I think that this is another example of how the pandemic accelerated a trend that was already in place and really needed to happen. And we've benefited a lot from this. You know, we transitioned initially everything to, you know, video lectures, Zoom, WebEx is what we use, but it's all the same kind of thing. And this allowed us the opportunity to really achieve something that was that had been a long-term goal of ours, which was to ensure that all of our learners, whatever site they were currently working at, could have a meaningful participation in our didactics. The other thing that this accelerated for us was a platform that could record those standard didactics. So if someone was on vacation, if they were on a night rotation, they could watch the recording. They could still participate in this. Whereas before, the way we addressed that requirement was, okay, here was the topic. Here was the chapter in the book. If you, you know, you can go and read this and we could talk about it if you, if you want to talk more about it. But now they can actually easily access uh, the actual event. Um, where does this go in the future? I think, you know, what we need, what, what we lack right now with all of these different areas of, of micro-learning, tutorial, so to speak, is what happens to it after, after the event is over? How does that thing get assessed for its quality? How does it get assessed and how does it remain discoverable for people who may want to revisit or people who may benefit from it who don't even know it exists? And what's its expiration date? You know, what, what's, you know I go to the store and buy a canister of milk, uh, a gallon of milk. It's got an expiration date. I could probably still drink it a day or two after that, right? But I don't want to buy it. What's the expiration date on a tutorial? When's it appropriate to, to turn my nose and sniff it a little bit to see if it's still fresh? Um, I think that's an ongoing question and something that we need to probably tackle better as a community. You know, Dr. Miles gives better stories, but I think I make better dad jokes. So two jokes. One, I was as I was listening to you, at least we don't need that AV person to help us record the lectures. Because I feel like all lectures were delayed by two hours because nobody could figure out how to record it. So that was one. And two, 
I suppose, you know, the expiry date on books is easier to pick up because you can tell by how old the leather is, right? But I was reading somewhere that medical literature, and that's just a joke, no offense to anybody, but medical literature does, in some specialties, get outdated within months. So I was thinking to myself one day, I'm contributing to this book right now. I was like, between the time that I started writing this chapter to the time when it'll come out in print, it will be outdated because we in Palm Crit are one of those specialties with a half-life of less than two months. All right, so uh, I'm going to pivot, you know, because this gets very hairy every time. Um, and I make jokes when I'm uncomfortable. So um, talking about interviewing and recruiting, um, very tough, very, very difficult for everybody. And I, I, I think this was one of the hardest things for me um, as an educator and as somebody who did start working in this term. So directing this to Rampon, you just signed up for the job. Uh, you're excited. So congrats, first of all. How was it? Did you, I, I think maybe for you it might be different because you're close by, but did you go through some virtual interviews when you were looking for the job? How was the experience? Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I, I think for uh, a, a faculty position or just an individual position, I think that specific environment was not, it hit nearly as hard as more group-based, such as going into a residency or a fellowship or a medical school, uh, because it is individualized and it, single person communicating with, uh, you know, a small group of people or a small division uh, or a division leader in a small division there. So I didn't feel like it was particularly abnormal. Uh, you know, there was some usual email exchanges on the forefront of things, a decision, um, you know, one place uh, offered me a meal and I had a small meal with uh, a contingent of uh, providers from that location. Uh, other places didn't. I'm not sure if that's uh, just the nature of uh, that, how they run it or if that was a leftover from COVID. Um, but for an individual um, assessing a place, I don't think there's really any other way to do it other than come here, meet us, see the facility, see exactly the equipment that we're using, the people that we have. Uh, and that's and that's the process that I went through. Uh, but I think it's, it's a lot different than, um, you know, the groups of fellows that we've been interviewing. And I'm sure everyone is very familiar with those hurdles that we've been overcoming. So to Helms, tell me, you said, did you, and when you started, did you have virtual interviews? So can I ask, um, you know, you're a trainee, right? So it's your sort of first introduction post-medical school. And when you were in medical school, this was not necessarily a thing, right? There's always going to be this current generation that has done this at least one time. So for somebody who has never done this, how was the experience? Well, for me, everything was new, actually, because I graduated right before the pandemic, and then I applied in the first round of virtual interviews. So for me, it was a completely new thing, and everybody was very insecure because we didn't know how these virtual interviews were, were going to go, and then also we didn't have the dinners that we would have before to meet people in the like from the hospital from the institution to have a feeling in terms of like uh do i fit in here and we also didn't have the opportunity to visit the place or visit the city and to know like do i want do i want to live here or not so everything was based on the zoom interaction and everything was was new. So we, we weren't that familiar with Zoom at that time. At least I wasn't. So making sure your microphone is working, your background is okay. The camera is not going to stop working. My internet, what if, what if it rains? What if like something different happened and I can't attend? And I think it's some, now we are better at this, but at that time I felt really insecure in terms of like, am I going to be able to connect with people well through Zoom and am I going to be able to actually show everything I want to show to that interviewer? Uh, so I think it was really challenging, but for everyone. So kind of was fair in the end because everyone was having a new experience together and everyone was learning uh, on the go, but it, it, it did add a lot of stress. And talking about stressing during interviewing, I think it was particularly stressful because as an international medical graduate, you already have challenges, right? You have, it could be any number of things that we 
had pre-existing, whether it is not able to do rotations, limited opportunities for that, research limitations, having trained in a different system. Did you feel the pandemic exacerbated that? Wow, for sure. Uh, what I, I had, first of all, like I had my tests canceled a couple of times, so I wasn't sure when I was going to be able to take my exam, my, my USMLE steps uh, or when I was going to be able to apply. And then I did have uh, rotations canceled as well. So I didn't know if I was going to be able to have that experience and to get the, the letters that are so important for international medical students to apply. And then uh, the meeting people in person so they can meet you not only through that quick zoom call but they can also see like how you behave and and the way you talk and the way you you interact inside the hospital with a new culture i feel like those things have a are very important for international medical students when they are applying as well so i think and to not include the whole immigration visa, not, not knowing if you're going to be able to get into the country to start residency, not knowing if you're ever going to be able to do a rotation before applying uh, to residency, to not like we didn't know if step two clinic CS was going to come back or wasn't. And if it was going to come back, how would we get into the country to take this exam and to get our scores? So it did add, it did add a lot of stress. And I know it was stressful for American medical graduates as well. Uh, but I think for us, international medical graduates was even more. So from program perspective, Dr. Miles, how do you clearly, right, when things shift, when there's these tectonic shifts, no matter what happens, your existing disparities exacerbate socioeconomic, whether it's related to race, availability of resources, all of that. So it's a program. I know educators in your position, in our position, spend a lot of time in trying to combat it. So what were your three biggest sort of tips on think about these things next time a shift like this happens to prevent, you know, as much impact? Do you mean three things to, uh, to prevent uh, difficulties in variable access to interviews? In all, right. So when you're interviewing, right, what are your three things that you can do to ensure everybody has equitability, you know, through the process? So for yeah. example, I'll, again, I'll leave with an example. So for me, I think one of the things that was super important was to stress that cognitively, just because you're frustrated with the process, mm. don't take it out on the person. Yeah. Yeah. For the faculty, you mean to, to not take out yes. a candidate? Yeah. I, I think, I think there was a bit of that that was mitigated the first year because it was all so new to us all. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, we focused on and as many programs have is, is the understanding that we do all have our own implicit bias that, that can be at play and, and to, instruct our strategies on ways to um, help to address and mitigate that bias. There are certain uh, practices that I recommend to my faculty on an ongoing basis, that, such as perspective taking, shared experience, um, you know, contra uh, exemplars are, are different ways that that can be approached. I think when you look at the idea of um, people going through the virtual experience, we started to realize that we needed to be proactive in diffusing some of that nervousness. Like Dr. Helms had mentioned, you know, you're, you're wondering, you know, is my camera lit correctly? Do I have uh, the right things in my background? What if the internet goes out? What if it rains? Uh, so we made it very intentional at the beginning of our interview session to talk to the candidates and say, look, if it messes up, we're going to fix it. It's going to be fine. If we have to see you on another day, you're, you're not going to lose your opportunity to interview. We did ours all on one day. You know, it was a half day. Other programs actually made individual connections between the candidate and the faculty member. And so they could interview at whatever day or time was convenient for both. And so different pros and cons to, to those models, of course. And so uh, I think that uh, we've learned together how can we mitigate, and there are, I'm sure, barriers and things that contribute to some of the different experiences and, and different uh, opportunity that we still need to learn. 
Um, and this year in particular is going to be very interesting on the recruitment side of things. What, what will the landscape look like of the pandemic? What will it mean for virtual and in-person interviews? This is something we're working out right at this very moment and trying to figure out uh, how to address it. And so, you know, learning from this experience is, uh, is still an ongoing process. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things to think about, do you offer one or both or either, right? So that's interesting. All right. I think we are about to head into the top of the hour. Um, if there are any questions from the attendees, please put them in the chat. I can ask, um, you know, Dr. Miles, Helms, or ramp on for you. Otherwise, I was going to ask you all for things from this pandemic in relation to medical education that you would like to either keep going forward or you think were cool, but you would want to refine and then keep going forward. How about two things each if you want? We'll start with Dr. Helms. Well, okay. I need probably need two seconds to come up with, with the best answer, but I think things that I... I think we can keep, but we need to refine. I would say some virtual didactics. I think for some specific like uh, lectures and topics, those were nice. Uh, I don't think they are appropriate for everything. I think what uh, Dr. Rampon brought, brought up in terms of like um, making sure we also have in-person training and and. I, I, at least for me, those like morning report type of lectures that we all get the discussion is the best part of it needs to go back in person. I don't think the Zoom uh, people engage as much as, as they do in person. So I think the Zoom lectures can continue, but they need to be refined and they need to be limited to, to specific topics. And I think the the partnership, like uh, everyone working together and being kinder to one another in the hospital and understanding that it's it's a struggle and, and we were all struggling with the pandemic, but now even when the things are a little bit better, people are still struggling with different, different things in their lives. So to be kinder to one another, I think it's something that the pandemic brought and I, I hope it continues. So I think those two things are my my top two. I like those two. And thank you for leading the pack. It's always, always the hardest. Because now watch, Drs. Miles and Rampon are going to have eloquent things to say, but you led the pack. Right? Dr. Rampon, you're up. Oh, dear. Yeah, building it up. Uh, I, I, I definitely agree with Dr. Helms that I think there is a role for uh, mixed Zoom and in-person educational aspects and selecting what types of things can best be done, um, you know, with people at their own home or what point in day it, it what point in the day it is, you know, perhaps those four o'clock lectures are best done online. So maybe people can get home a little bit earlier and get in from home. Uh, but you know, the ones that really involve a lot more conversation or more hands-on approach, you know, make those in the middle of the day and make them in person maybe give us some food. You never know. Uh, but I think uh, some of the things that definitely need to be done away with are, um, you know, getting people away uh, from the in-groups into their own things. Like you mentioned on rounds, uh, you know, the, lacks, the lack of social workers, the lack of pharmacists, the lack of you know people who are available to be called if you need me. Um, it, it made education on rounds difficult from that aspect. And uh, I'm looking forward to that getting away. And those are fair. And I think those also, like most things in medical education, have immediate impact on patient care, right? Because yeah. I know that not having our pharmacists or, uh, you know, critical care trained staff on rounds, not having them, it creates a problem, right? Because, yeah. oh, we'll discuss with them after rounds, but, you know. All right. Uh, I appreciate everyone's, you know, appreciate everyone's contributions more when you're really missing them on a daily basis. I agree. Dr. Miles. Yeah, I think those are all excellent points. Uh, you know, things that have worked well about the remote learning, but things that sometimes we want to, uh, you know, jettison because the, the, the good or the, you know, perfect is the enemy of the good, so to speak, but, you know, zoom being good enough doesn't mean it's really an adequate replacement. And um, so I look forward to getting rid uh, of, of 
the requirement for everything to have a hybrid situation. There are some interactions that really only work in person. Now, that being said, I'm a personally a big proponent of multimedia learning, video creation for teaching. And so I think, what do we need to keep and refine? That was a way that you asked the question. I think we need to keep the tutorials. I think we need to keep the short videos that are focused. And so what we need to refine is a way that we can identify these in a, in a way that's just in time learning. Um, I, I imagine we need some, we need systems that know who we are and an individual, where we are in our stage of training and can curate this massive library of data of, of content that's available and deliver it to us when we really need it. You know, if, if, if something knows, if the computer knows, you know, that I'm getting ready to start my MICU night rotation, it may send to me, hey, did you know last month, you know, Dr. Helms did a tutorial on rapid sequence induction medications. Would you like to see this, you know, 10 minute, uh, 10 minute discussion? Why, yes, I would. That would be fantastic. It's just what I need right at the time I need it. Um, and so I think, you know, leveraging that can be uh, a really powerful way that we refine the experience of the pandemic. But that said, um, in-person teaching, if anything, uh, we've really, you know, understood deep, more deeply the value of that. Um, and um, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll come back to that with a lot of more energy uh, and a lot more appreciation for what it means to be standing side by side while we're teaching and not just uh, across screens. On that sentiment, I think um, as generally somebody who is very pro inclusion of technology in teaching, I have to agree. I think knowing what works when is the key. I think if you realize everything works, you sort of figure out when it works best. I, I think that's a good um, put together of all the comments. Thank you for taking time out. I am a big proponent of also getting out on time in the modern days of medical education. Nothing has been uh, as clear. Um, I don't have any more questions from our audiences. So thank you all for joining. Thank you, Drs. Rampon, Helms, and Miles for joining. And I really hope I get to meet you guys in person soon, right? I think that would be a great uh, end result of today's discussion. You all have a good day. Good talking to you. Thank Thanks you very much. much. Thank you very much.